With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, y'all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We're fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. So Cass, as I was starting to work on this episode, I had a little bit of a sudden realization. We might have made a little bit of a faux pas. Uh-oh, what do we do? Is it bad? It's not bad. Um, it's totally rectifiable, but perhaps unequitable. <laughs> Uh-oh, how so? Well, you know, uh, we do endeavor um, to be inclusive on Dressed, and we want to present a diverse range of voices and a diverse range of topics. And some of our listeners have asked if we intend to speak about non-Western styles of dress and fashion, which we absolutely will. Oh, yeah. We will indeed get to this. but. Before that, I think we might need to address something that's like a little bit even more fundamental to how we have presented information on the show. Go on. (laughs) Well, those of our listeners who may have listened to the first 16 episodes. Holy moly, we're already on episode 17. Yes, it's true. Time flies. This is episode 17. Um, And I think that in the course of those first 16 episodes, perhaps we might have given the erroneous impression so far that all fashion historians are women. Oh, oopsie. Well, I mean, as you and I know, that is not the case at all. There are plenty of gentlemen in our profession all over the world. Exactly. And today we are so happy to have two of our most favorite gentlemen on the show. And not because they are men, but because they are international authorities on the subject of today's episode. I am very excited to welcome these guys. I mean, April and I have already written two books on the subject of fashion plates and fashion illustration. We, of course, have talked about April's Fashion Plates 150 Years of Style, but that same year, 2015, April and I released our first book together, Fashion and the Art of Pochoir. And thanks to both of those experiences, we got in a bit of a habit of contacting Antoine Boucher and Nicolas Montagne, especially when we encounter something odd or hyper rare or are just generally stumped about something. They are renowned dealers of fashion ephemera and the owners of Librairie Dictat, which operates out of Lille, France. I just had a funny thought. You know that um, game of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon? (laughs) Go on. I bet that you could connect just about any professional fashion historian in the world by playing Six Degrees of Antoine and Nicolas. Oh, for sure. (laughs) We all know them and adore them, not because they are only handsome and charming, because they are insanely knowledgeable about the history of fashion by way of the types of materials that they collect and then in turn deal. Yeah, and we were talking about the rarest of fashion and press photos, rare fashion magazines. So, for instance, if you were in the market to purchase the very first issue of Vogue from 1892, these are the two gentlemen you would call. Or in my case, if you want to talk to Antoine for hours about Paul Perret. Oh, and and they have, trust me. Trust me. Yes. <laughs> um, or perchance, if you are looking for an original pamphlet issued in 1792 during the French Revolution that outlines the laws pertaining to who can wear what types of dress during the period, they would also be the people to call. I happen to know this is a fact because this was one of our recent purchases. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, yeah, they, during the French Revolution. <laughs> wow. Uh, They also have uber rare and limited edition books on fashion and dress, as well as original sketches, 
correspondence, things like original customer bills from the House of Worth. I mean, April and I could just keep going on and on about their treasures and delights. Yeah. And while we are going to speak to them today about the fashion press before the advent of photography, about fashion plates in particular, I also want to hear a little bit about them, about their experiences as researchers, collectors, and dealers of the ephemera of fashion. So without further ado, we bring you Monsieur Antoine and Monsieur Nicolas. Thank you so much for joining us on Dress today. So gentlemen, welcome. Thank you so much for lending us a bit of your time while you are here visiting New York City. Thank you for having us. Yay. Yeah, thank you. I'm excited to see you again. And before we really get into today's topic, I was hoping that you would tell us a little bit about how the two of you first became interested in fashion history and also the path that led you to dealing professionally. Um, you know, what we do is extremely niche. And I find that people's stories of how they ended up as fashion historians are usually pretty compelling. Yeah, it's quite difficult to answer that because we don't really know what led us into fashion. But I think what is interesting about um, our love in, for fashion is that our first um, contact with fashion was indirect. Uh, it was not with clothing themselves, but with, rather than with visual and text about fashion. And I think that influenced a lot uh, what we do today mm -hmm. uh, because we deal with representation of fashion and not clothing themselves. And that's what we like about fashion, how it is represented through magazines, to through books and fashion plates, obviously. Right. Um, so were you working as rare book dealers in general before you kind of switched and switched your focus to fashion? Not at all. Okay. <laughs> not at all. Um, I used to buy, well, I, I buy a lot of books about fashion, but not antique books. And Antoine was already into antique books and old stuff. And when we met, we just merged. You our combined your yeah. interests. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's very sweet. <laughs> yeah. Um, I happen to know that you have been doing some extensive research yeah. on the subject of fashion plates over the last few years. Because um, last time you were here, uh, we talked about it as well. Um, but can you tell our listeners what exactly is a fashion plate? And, and I, this is going to be Hilariously obvious to some of our listeners, but, but I, I want to say that it is not an item of tableware. Um, and I only say this because a really, really good friend of mine, for years when I she knew I was working on a book about fashion plates, she thought that I was talking about plates <laughs> with images of fashion on them. But that's not what they are. <laughs> But you well, know, you know what? <laughs> Your friend is not completely wrong because we did find some plates, some dishes with uh, fashion images printed on them. <laughs> I've seen those and they're from um, Journal des Dames des Modes. Yes, some of them and right. some with them, some bonards on them. Mm -hmm. um, so, well, obviously that's not what we deal with today. Uh, so we deal with fashion plates as simply fashion images that are printed on paper and that are printed after a drawing, not a photograph. So mm -hmm. That's what we deal with. And they're called specifically plates because they're usually of the technique that was used yeah. to produce the print. Do you want to speak to that, Antoine? Yes, there's uh, different techniques involved in the production of fashion plates. And it could be wood at the beginning when we started with um, wood engravings. And then you would have some copper plates that would be engraved too. And then you would have a new technique that would help you to uh, have a more... Um, 
clean line with uh, etching, so using acid to engrave the plate, and uh, and that would be uh, improved at a moment um, with soft varnish developed at the beginning of the 17th century, and uh, and two French people have um, been uh, keen on using that technique, uh, and uh, it was. Uh, Jacques Callot and uh, Abraham Boss. So this soft varnish they applied on the plate would help making clearer lines and um, and more beautiful image, if I may say so. And then the technique will also evolve throughout the 19th century with um, the appearance uh, of steel engraving. And mm-hmm. that steel engraving would uh, lead to a mass production of images. So we will have a complete shift with the 19th century towards um, a mass production of fashion plates. Right. And it's my understanding that these steel plates were gave a, gave a cleaner line, but they were also harder to produce compared to copper. Is that correct? They... Mm, it's hard to say. Do you mean on the technical point of view? Mm-hmm. When you had to engrave a plate without the varnish at first, uh, it would be more complicated, more hard to, to, to carve, the, um, uh, to incise the, the copper. With the varnish, you would have uh, another layer that would enable you to make the carving more easy for mm-hmm. people. So that would be a very much improvement of, um, of techniques when it comes to, um, to making a fashion plate. And, and the steel engraving would be that kind of dynamic too, an mm-hmm. easier way to make a plate and an easier way to print them and right. to print them with um, a larger scale. So really there's a direct connection between um, the technology that was behind the creating of these prints and also them really going into mass production. Mm-hmm. All of these things kind yeah. of go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, and I just want to um, point out to any of our listeners who may not already be familiar with what a fashion plate is, is that they tend to be a little bit formulaic <laughs> since their very inception um, until their demise. And we'll get to that later in the episode. But um, really what they are are typically um, a printed image of a solo or a group of figures within a rectangular border. Um do you guys want to comment on that at all? Or are we just going to accept that as truth for, for the sake of the episode? It's, it's true. Uh, and it started uh, at the end of the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And that um, were called mod in, in French, this kind of uh, fashion plates, which is pretty accurate because in French, uh, fashion is mud. But uh, um, this is uh, a new way to have fashion plates that is um, uh, indebted to, um, to a family that is called Les Bonards, which mm-hmm. was a French family, who decided to have that kind of frame and figure on, on a plate. And they were um, inspired by two other engravers and publishers which were named uh, Le Pautre, and Jean Dieu Saint Jean, and they borrowed that idea and completely made it bloom uh, at the end of the 17th century. So uh, this um, specific way of dealing with a fashion plate is born at that moment in the uh, 1670s. Yes. Yeah, so uh, the Bonnard brothers, they were a family of fashion plate artists. Mm-hmm. Really, um, they were kind of some of the first fashion plate artists to gain a modicum of fame. I guess we would say they're still quite renowned, um, but. Uh, how were these fashion plates used and consumed? And who was buying these fashion images and why? Fashion plates were intended for um, people who didn't have a direct access to fashion. 
So it would be people from uh, other countries than France and people uh, in France that would live outside of Paris, mm -hmm. not in, in Paris. So the French provinces, as we would call them then. And so this is what uh, was happening in the 17th century, but also in the 18th century. And if you remember or have ever read the introduction of the uh, Cabinet des Modes, the editorials of the first uh, issue. Uh, what he's talking about is Cabinet des Modes is really considered to be probably the very first fashion magazine proper. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the editor-in-chief of the magazine in the editorial says that the magazine was intended to replace the fashion dolls mm -hmm. and the fashion commissioners of the time and to have fashion directly delivered to um, foreign countries and French provinces. So yeah. that's really the idea of fashion plates at, um, in the history of the French fashion plates. Um, and the fashion dolls that you were just speaking about, um, they were also known as Pandoras. Yeah. Um, and basically they were quite literally what they sound like. They were dolls dressed in the latest fashions that could be shipped to friends, family, loved ones, even into other countries to kind of display what the latest mode, particularly in Paris, was. So you can understand why all of a sudden why prints printed on paper would be much valued because, and, you know, you didn't have to transport these large objects. Um, I just want to touch briefly here on a distinction between a fashion plate and a costume plate um, because we do indeed see artists creating prints that are depicting styles of dress a full century before fashion plates proper came into existence. Um, for instance, Albert Durer, he created a whole series of prints depicting the dress of both Venice and Nuremberg starting around 1500. So can one of you speak to this point? Like how does a fashion plate differ from a costume plate? Costume plates depicts costumes, some stable um, representation of dress mm -hmm. uh, within a specific time and location. And, uh, and you have uh, in the 16th century many uh, books devoted to that encyclopedical Mm -hmm. if <laughs> that word exists, uh, encyclopedical uh, way of looking at the world and trying to report, register, in a way, all the existing way of dressing. Yeah, like around the world, like regional yeah, costume exactly. Exactly. or dress, dress of different nations. Yeah. People were traveling to different nations, you know, taking down records. So they're almost like anthropological yeah. studies exactly. a little bit. Yeah. And it's linked with, with this idea of the Renaissance, with trying to know the world better and to discover the world mm -hmm. and, and to classify, yeah. and to classify right. it yeah. also. Taxonomies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And fashion um, is really linked with change. And this dynamic of change does not apply to costume, really, in the 16th century. So the dynamic of fashion really starts with the beginning of the 17th century in France with, um, with the court of Louis XIII, uh, Louis XIII. And so the fashion plates and plates depicting fashion, changing fashion, only appears in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. I and think a lot of people generally consider that one particular issue, Mercure Gallant, as being first fashion plate proper. I think it was 1673, something like that. It's 1672. Um, 1672. Um, <laughs> when the Mercure Gallant started to talk about fashion. Mm -hmm. um, and the first fashion plates featured in the Mercure Gallant we are 1678, okay. we're published in 1678, but you had some fashion plates issued by Le Pôtre and Jean-Dieu Saint-Jean in the 1675. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so this idea of fashion plates is really linked with the court of uh, Louis XIV and the way 
he saw fashion and decorative art as a way to rule the world yes. in a way. Yeah, we've talked about this undressed, about how he decided that he was going to bolster his nation's economy through these luxury industries. So, Nicholas, many of these plates are actually uncolored as yeah. prints, um, but we do start to see this transition as we go into the 18th century and we start to see fashion imagery becoming increasingly hand-colored. Yeah. Um, but this was not color printing because color printing didn't really exist in the way that we think of it today. Okay. Who was coloring these plates and how? Oh, uh, who it's difficult to say, but actually they were um, hand-colored prints even in the um, 16th century. Oh, they were? Yeah, okay. yeah, we can find some Vecellio prints mm -hmm. uh, with colors. So they were printed in, in black and colors were applied by hand afterwards. So we, even in the 17th century and in the 18th century, we find uh, both versions of uh, every plate, one that are uncolored and other ones that are colored for, and obviously the colored ones were more expensive. And mm -hmm. so that's why there were two versions of them. We usually, usually find that the colors were applied by women uh, it was more precise work and they were done by ladies and not uh, by the, the male uh, engravers and printers. So you could buy your own already colored plate or have it colored afterwards, uh, either by the print seller or yeah, at another atelier mm. of uh, hand coloring. I would just throw this out there and assume that um, maybe if you're one of these ladies, you could also pick up your prints and go home yep. and work from home, <laughs> yeah. you know, while the kids were there and everything. <laughs> so this was a great job yeah. probably yes. at the time. And, and, you, <laughs> and you could see when you look at fashion plates and at hand-colded fashion plates that uh, they were hand-colded by someone different. And you will find the same plate with the different hand colorings, yeah. and which means that um, we should not trust too much the colors on a fashion plate. Right. Because they would probably not be completely accurate with the actual garment they're supposed to uh, depict. Yeah. I actually, a few years ago, I went back, I went to the Morgan Library and looked at all of their versions of Galerie des Modes, yeah. which we'll get to Galerie des Modes here in a second. But I found one particular plate that had five different colorways mm. applied to it. So, and obviously some of them were by a home hobbyist because mm. the technique was not so not so great. <laughs> um, so this really is a big business. I mean, this is how the information about fashion is being transmitted through these particular plates. And when we get back, I would like to go back and touch on um, exactly the contributions of the Bonnard brothers. Um, but first, we're going to take a sponsor break. So welcome back. Um, and we've touched on the Bonart Brothers' work as fashion plate artists in the 17th century a little bit. But um, I know that some of their work in particular depicted personalities of the day in their fashion plates. So to what end were they using famous personages in fashion plates and their fashion imagery? Well, you have to keep in mind that they were businessmen and they wanted to find new ways to sell their fashion prints. So what they just did, they changed the caption of their existing plates. And instead of printing like uh, Dame de Qualité or, or Homme de Qualité, they printed a, a famous name uh, on, the plinth, on the plate. And it proved to be very popular because 
everybody was interested in the in the court affairs, but nobody knew what people at the court really looked like. So it was really easy to print a famous name on the plate and to make it believe that it was the actual representation of the famous uh, personality of the court. And it was actually not at all because we can find some plates depicting uh, Madame, uh, who was the um, sister-in-law of the king. And when you compare them to the official portraits of the of Madame, they did not look at all the same way. So, so the likeness just no, didn't really matter. No. This was a marketing move. Exactly, <laughs> because you could actually find the same plate with like a different caption, uh, a different name on it. And uh, it's the same face and the same plate. So it was really just a way to sell more uh, fashion plates. But sometimes when, when it comes to the highest members of the royal family, there were depictions of them and portraits of them. So uh, when it comes to the king, uh, the queen and uh, and the son of, uh, of the king and so on and so forth, uh, you would have some quite accurate depiction of the face. But when you deal with uh, different members of the court, you would have some uh, neutral face, mm-hmm. if I may say so, some fashion model uh, face from right. other uh, existing plates. So they recycle a lot. And the business in, in the fashion prints uh, was sometimes a lot about recycling mm-hmm. what has been done before, what has been drawn before, and right. so on and so forth. And I think we're going to touch on the culture of copying here in a second. Um, so where were these fashion plate artists getting the information about the fashions that they're depicting in these prints? Though fashion artists would take inspiration from street style. Mm. And street style at that time would be some places in which ladies of the time would stroll and show off, if I may say so, and show their latest fashion. So artists would go there and take some drawings from uh, from those ladies. So that's something that is uh, often publicized by uh, fashion publishers de nature, d'après nature, from nature, if I may say so, from real life. And that's something that um, is interesting that not only they borrow those uh, styles from uh, specific places and people, but um, when you look at the biography of some of the engravers, uh, you would have some clue about their relation to fashion. And Abraham Boss we've talked uh, about him, was the son of a tailor. Mm, I did not know that. And there's several uh, artists who were born into a family dealing with fashion business, if I may say so. So you would have um, in the text that could accompany the the plates the mention of the location where the fashion was uh, was seen. Les Tuileries, um, Le Cours de la Reine, um, Tivoli and later Les Champs Elysees and so on and so forth. Very so, fashionable places to yeah. see and be seen. Exactly to exhibit your your fashion. Um, and I think this is an interesting comparison. I talk to my students about this sometimes when I talk about fashion plates, particularly things from the 18th century that are taken from nature, which is that, you know, think you can in a weird way kind of think of these as like 18th century street style blog, mm-hmm. right? It's like that's the fashion that's happening on the street right now. But this the temporal aspect of like how we consume that now, think of things going down the runway and literally probably an hour later, mm. you can see it on your phone versus this whole process of 
an artist, going to one of these fashionable gardens or other places, sketching women that he sees on the street and men too, and then having to take that back to an engraver who would then engrave the plate because typically the artist and the engraver were two separate people. Um, And a lot of plates we know, we have the names of both on them. Um, And then they would have to be printed and then then they would have to be hand colored Mm -hmm. and then they would have to go be out available and consumed, um, you know, by by the public. So I just think it's very interesting. The immediacy of fashion media has, it's completely something different today. And at the same time, if you if you look back at what was happening with those artists sketching from real life, they mm-hmm. were also going to marchand de mode. So mm-hmm. people from the fashion business and sketch directly from the shops. And, uh, and that's uh, quite interesting to know that this connection with the business was also very present, not only depicting fashion for depicting fashion, but also depicting fashion for selling fashion. Right. And, and almost like partnering with the industry. Yeah. Yes. Um, any of our listeners who have not listened to the Rose Bertin episode, please return to it because <laughs> Anton was just talking about the Marchand de Mode and she is perhaps one of the most remaining famous Marchand de Mode today. She, she doesn't remain. I mean that she remains one of the most famous. Um, so we touched on copying a second ago, and there was just this massive demand for fashion imagery during the 17th, 18th, and 19th century. And so there was this huge culture of copying. How and why was this happening? Well, uh, it just proved that these images were very popular because we can find pirate copies already, sometimes even the same year that the, the official plates were uh, published. Uh, for instance, we have uh, copies for Calo dated from, from the same year, from the same century. Um, so they just prove that these images were very, very popular. And, um, and for us, it's as booksellers and print, se- uh, print uh, sellers, uh, it's it's a nightmare because uh, it's very difficult to find out which are the real ones and the copies. So we have to look at very precise details like numbers, like the type of papers, like the colors that I use to very, because some of them are very uh, neat and, and very tricky. And, um, <laughs> and some others are very bad quality uh, copies. So it's very, very interesting to, 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 to work on that. And so what is interesting is that most of the copies are reverse copies of the fashion plates because the engraver copied and uh, when he prints the copies, it's just reversed the initial drawing. Right. So that's a way to differentiate the original and the copy. Oh, I see. So the copy would look exactly like the print itself, not the orientation of how the plate was engraved or etched. Yeah. I did not know that. But but you can engrave with a mirror. Yeah. Which makes the plate... (laughs) In the same sense as the drawing. So that's tricky. So there's always some hints to tell you if it's a genuine print or um, a copy. And that's um, really a, a, a quite um, funny game to, to play with, even if it's a nightmare. Mm-hmm. It's a funny game because um, you have had some uh, copies at the time of the print. Um, you would have some prints that would be licensed copies. Bonars could have agreement with dealers from Italy to sell their plates and reproduce their plates. And you had some pirate copies at the same time of, uh, of the production of, of the plate, which were then not 
licensed by the publishers. So you have a, a great variety of, um, of copying. You have copies by a publisher borrowing from another French publisher. So you have lots of lawsuits in the publishing industry in France uh, in the 17th century and, 9th and 18th century. And that's quite um, interesting to know. And you have, um, at the end of the 19th century, a revival of the fashion plates and people start to reprint old-fashioned print from the 18th century. And then you would have some trouble to identify it because you still have some handmade um, paper at that time. Mm-hmm. And um, that just makes things trickier. And yeah. It makes things trickier. And sometimes you would spot the fake with the colors because you've got, for example, fake Galerie des Modes that have very dull colors. And those dull colors are uh, a hint that it's a fake um, fashion plate. Not mm-hmm. a fake, but a reproduction uh, fashion plate. And sometimes there were very tricky publishers, such as Émile Gosselin, who decided to do a reprint of Modes et Manières, uh, which was a famous uh, suite by De Bucourt, published by La Mésangère um, at the end of the 18th century. And he did a very good um, reproduction of it. And he printed it on vintage paper from the 18th century. <laughs> and so the image is quite good. The paper is accurate. And he was kind enough to put a small G in the picture so that we can see that it's a reprint and not the original um, plates. But not everybody did that. So sometimes uh, you have to rely on the, um, on the quality of the paper and um, the quality of the end coloring to tell a fake from um, the genuine print. Um, you just mentioned Galerie des Modes, and it's one of my favorites. And it really probably remains one of the best and most beautiful primary sources on 18th century fashion. Um, and Galerie des Modes, a costume française, that's its entire title, wasn't a fashion magazine proper, but it was rather a series of fashion plates that were produced between 1778 and 1787. So we're talking Raina Marie Antoinette. And in fact, she herself is indeed depicted in one of the plates, um, as you mentioned. But we do know quite a bit about this publication, including the names of the artists and the engravers. And there were 445 plates that we know of, Mm -hmm. is that correct, Um, published during its run. So can you tell us a little bit about um, the relationship between the artist and the engraver? And also, what is it that makes Galerie des Modes so special as a series? Well, as you said, uh, it's really a beautiful series, one of the most beautiful. And what is interesting is to have a beautiful fashion plate. It's really the combination of a good illustrator, a good drawer, and a good engraver. And as you said, the, the, we have the two names printed on the fashion plate because they are both uh, really important to the final plate. And a good drawing can be really badly uh, engraved. And we, in the end, you would have a bad fashion plate. So the both are very, very important. And... Um, so for the Galerie des, des Modes, we have really good uh, drawers like um, Leclerc, Doré, Vato, Saint-Aubin, but also very good engravers like Dupin, Pata, uh, Voisard, and Vosinic. So there is really a good team of, of workers mm-hmm. uh, for, the, for this uh, uh, series. And uh, you mentioned uh, Marie-Antoinette in the, in the series. And actually, they were, it was quite common to have Marie Antoinette uh, represented in fashion series, but you would also have the king. So it was like 
more approve of allegiance to the power uh, rather than depicting the royal family as fashion figures, actually. Right. And Gallery de Mille, correct me if I'm wrong, was actually published in, you know, with the privilege of the king. It, yeah. it, it, basically, the king gave this fashion plate series his royal stamp of approval. Yeah. Um, but well, to, to, to publish something in the 18th was, century, you had you have to, to have, though, privilege right. uh, of the king. So not having it would, you would face some legal issues. So there, that's something that is quite natural for a series of prints at that time to have. But at the same time, they wanted, whether it is Eno um, and Rapilly, who were the publisher of the Galerie des Modes, or their competitors, they would make plates with the king and the queen to stress that uh, allegiance to the power. And especially since they were depicting mm -hmm. fashion related to aristocracy and court dressing. So it's something that stressed also the readership that those type of plates were looking at or, and, and targeting at the same time. Right. Uh, so can you expand upon, upon that? Like, who would be the customer or consumer for Galerie des Modes in the 1770s and the 1780s? Given the price of those plates... So they were very expensive. Yeah. They were very expensive. So the people who would buy them would be uh, some wealthy aristocrats, often not necessarily in Paris, but outside of Paris, um, to have the latest uh, fashion from the court of Louis XVI and, uh, and Marie Antoinette, especially. Um, so the clients of those um, plates would be uh, wealthy aristocrats. Right. So they were basically trying to get the latest words so they could follow suit. Yeah. Those who could afford to follow fashion at that pace, really, because it was fashion was changing very quickly. What is interesting is that we found a plate from La Galerie uh, mentioning Rosbertin. Uh, yeah, yeah, a yeah. hat by Rosbertin. It's the only one that is... Uh, that credits the uh, Marchand de Mode during the series. Yeah, and what is interesting with that plate is that it's a specific way to make a, a plate. So it's a new way to engrave the plate, which is trying to imitate chalk drawing. And that's a new um, technique that was uh, developed at that time by Bonnet and Chaninet, who were a famous uh, engraver at that time. So it's a, a rare example of uh, a fashion plate with the chalk manner within mm -hmm. the Galerie des Modes. Um, and we sometimes lose that effect with the hand coloring that mm. completely erase that uh, idea of a drawing, of depicting a drawing, rendering uh, a drawing. So speaking of Rose Bretagne, so she was obviously a purveyor of fashions and trimmings and, and different sorts of things as a marchand de mode. But there is always, and this will ramp up in the 19th century, this commercial aspect to fashion plates. Um, especially in the 19th century, the text beneath them will really tell you where you can go mm -hmm. to buy these things. And that's one of the things that I always tell my students that when you're looking at a costume plate versus a fashion plate, look at what is happening. Like the fashion plates are oftentimes just simply advertising vehicles mm -hmm. for people, products, or styles. But let's talk about the French Revolution for a bit since we touched on Rose Bartan and Marie Antoinette. Clearly, it was complete chaos. <laughs> what happened to the fashion press in France during this period? And what was happening with the fashion press in other European capitals at the same time? 
So the French Revolution brought chaos to French fashion at, at that time and, um, and deeply impacted the um, fashion plates at, um, at that moment because the fashion plates are supposed to depict the fashion of the time. And if fashion is chaotic at that time, what do you depict and, um, and how you uh, cope also with the new power that is uh, coming into, um, into the picture? if I may say so. And that, um, <laughs> and that idea of depicting the new fashions is, um, is something hard to do uh, when the fashion is changing. And we have a few examples of, um, of plates depicting fashion in revolutionary times. One of those is a series of plates by a hairdresser mm. uh, who was called De Pain. And uh, he issued uh, a suite of prints, of four prints, depicting uh, revolutionary hairdressing. So coiffure à la liberté, à la nation, and so on and so forth. And, and those were high hairdos, and, um, and they wouldn't last long. Mm -hmm. So we, we are in transition period. So there's not much plates depicting those moments of chaos. And the only uh, fashion magazine that existed at that time was Le Journal de la Mode et du Goût. And, uh, and that which you, magazine... Which you so kindly sold us some of <laughs> recently. And that magazine um, was uh, facing problems uh, because they didn't know what to depict. So they recycled plates from the preceding years and, mm. uh, and they tried to uh, lower the quality of the paper because their readership was a bit at stake at that moment because we just saw that the Galerie des Modes was intending to aristocracy and fashion in the 18th century was intended into aristocracy. So when you um, behead <laughs> your readership, what right. is your new, new right. readership and what do you give to them? So this magazine stopped being published in 1793 and then we entered a kind of vortex in which you would have no real fashion magazine at so that like time. It was like a four-year time period where mm. the fashion press just almost, like in France, just kind of almost disappears. Yes, and at the same time, all the magazines in the other European countries still had their readership. So those magazines who had been inspired, which had been inspired uh, by uh, Galerie des Modes, Cabinet des Modes, and so on and so forth, uh, like the Gallery of Fashion uh, in London, like the Journal de Luxus und der Modern in Germany was still having its readership and still print fashion plates. But we were in France in a, in a bit of a problematic moment yes. with readership <laughs> and fashion at the same time. So in 1797, um, we do start to see the French fashion press reemerge in the wake of the revolution. And this is the time period where one of the most beloved fashion plates or fashion publications, I should say, of all time was launched, um, Journal des Dames des Modes. Um, and this title, it's a really stunning record of fashions of the late 18th century into the early 19th century. And it ran for a total of 42 years. And over... 3,600 plates or something around that. Am mm -hmm. I getting that number approximately right? Were um, published as part of the series called Costume Prisienne. And I mention this because sometimes you see people getting a little bit confused that they think that Costume Prisienne is the title of the publication, not from which they came from. But it's, correct me if I'm wrong, it's more of the title of the series of the plates. 
Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the most fascinating things I think about Journal de Dame de Mode is the fact that it was published every five days. Um, and I think this really speaks to the fact that this market for ladies' magazines is going to explode in the 19th century. People were consuming this information about fashion and lifestyle every five days. Can can one of you speak to this a little bit? Tell us why or your your thoughts on why? <laughs> well, we, we, we started uh, at that moment to have a, a more stable country mm. and more stable political regime. So um, the readership would be extended to bourgeoisie, Mm-hmm. rather than just aristocracy, even if... And the um, middle class is expanding itself exactly. at the same time. And that would be also true with um, Napoleon, which would bring back the... Um, um, French glory. Yeah, the French glory, if, if we may say so. Um, <laughs> but bring back a kind of monarchy into, into the picture, an empire. And so all that goes with an empire... And that, um, and that moment, so the fashion press gained a new readership and, and you would have some um, uh, interesting character taking advantage of that um, new situation. And that character is La Mésangère, mm-hmm. who founded the, um, the Journal des Dames et des Modes. Pierre de La Mésangère, yeah. right? And yeah. he, he was quite a, an interesting character. Yeah. Yes, he was a, f- a former priest, uh-huh. a former philosophy teacher. And um, he had to, after the revolution, he had to find another job. Because, and the reason he had to find another job was because religion for brief periods during the revolution was more or less taboo. Yeah, Yeah. kind of, yeah. And uh, actually, so he found a job uh, with um, Selec at the Journal des Dames et des Modes, and he was very good at it. Uh, He was a very uh, keen observer of fashion and, um, and trends, and so... He wrote the the articles in the in the journal, and he also uh, exercised much control of the the production of the plates, mm-hmm. uh, guiding the the illustrators, guiding the engravers, and he would write the caption of the plates. So he was very involved in the in the magazine, and um, and it is said that his um, influence over Europe was almost as huge as Napoleon's influence in Europe. Wow, that's yeah. how many people were reading yeah. Journal de Dame de And he was quite uh, a good businessman. Yeah, He's like the Condé Nast of this yeah, time exactly. period. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And he, he was um, good at taking down competitors. So they, he would buy the magazine that would be launched and absorb them, merge them into into his uh, his own journal. So he would kill competition. So he's and building the, a publishing empire. Exactly. Basically. And not only did um, did he publish uh, Journal de Dame des Modes, so a fashion magazine, he also published fashion suites and he, fa- he also published uh, fashion directories. And so he expanded mm-hmm. the um, the medias um, of, um, of fashion at that time. So it really was uh, some kind of condinast with different um, type of publication and at the same time a kind of aggressive um, dynamic of um, trying to keep his hands on uh, the markets. Right. And if I recall correctly, Salik died in some sort of accident who was his business partner for a brief period. Yeah, he died in a terrorist attack, yeah, which was more like an accident because it was an attack against uh, Napoleon, I, I guess. And somebody had set off a bomb and yeah, he happened yeah. to be one of the fatalities. Yeah, when that exactly. Happened. So, as we've said, um, 19th century, we start seeing a proliferation of 
fashion magazines and ladies magazines across all kind of spectrum of price points and quality, I would say, because just like today, you know, you know, you may have glamour and you may have W. Those might be two different readerships or two different audiences. And a lot of these 19th century magazines um, were kind of you know, specializing in very much in the same way. You see different qualities of plates. Mm -hmm. You can usually tell who the audience is just simply by looking at the plates in the magazines a lot of times. But something else that happens in the 19th century is the development of photography. And photographic images um, of people dressed up in the latest fashions were quite commonplace um, to be used on carte de visite or calling mm -hmm. cards, but we don't re really see the same immediate transition from the fashion plate as the way that fashion imagery or the latest trends is being conveyed to fashion photography immediately. When, when these, you know, carte de visite photographs become very popular, it actually took several more decades. So when do we start to see fashion photography creeping into the pages of fashion and lifestyle magazines and what is the relationship between fashion plates which were illustrations obviously and fashion photography in these in these early years at that time fashion plates uh, were really uh, intending to depict clothing in a precise manner and so you have all these kind of awkward poses to show the back of the dress and you have to see uh, the most detailed uh, version of the dress. And at the time, illustrations were still easier to produce than fashion, to reproduce than fashion photographs. So, so it was the role of illustration to show what were the clothes like. But uh, progressively, the fashion photograph was an easier way to depict reality. So in a way, illustration could free itself from the duty to depict fashion in a realistic way. Right. And we progressively had a more artistic way uh, through illustration to depict fashion. And photography was here to depict the reality of the clothing. Mm -hmm. So the illustration, obviously, too, um, you know, that can be exaggerated. Yeah. Um, and and really used in a, in a lot of way to sometimes distort the figure in order to emphasize the silhouette. Yeah. Um, so that was that was some of some of the fashion plates are just like that is not a possible figure at any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Would you touch on when we start to see uh, fashion photography coming into the magazine? So I think it, it's 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 in, it's in the late eighteen nineties. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's quite late, given the the fact that the photography started to really appear um, in the eighteen sixties. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, the the challenge of reproducing fashion. Oh, not fashion, but photography in a magazine was quite a big challenge. And it really took off uh, in fashion when um, a character that uh, a man named Charles Monzi uh, invented a new way to uh, print photographs. And, uh, and he started um, the fashion magazine called Les Modes. Mm -hmm. And he started in 1901. But that was not until that moment that fashion photography really was applied to uh, depict fashion as the main media in a magazine. You would often find in, uh, in the late 19th century magazine both illustration and fashion at the same time. Right. I think the earliest example I've seen in our collection is 1891 in mm -hmm. La Mode Pratique. Yes, yeah, that's it. Um, and what's interesting about those fashion photographs is, is that they 
you can barely tell them apart from a fashion plate mm. um, because it is indeed a photograph, but the kind of composition and the way that they pose the figures, it's very much mimicking the sort of static figures mm-hmm. that you see in fashion plates, sometimes even the same sort of like domestic interiors yeah. and a little bit of sentimentality <laughs> in there, I would say as well. It, not what we think of as modern fashion photography. And then you combine that with the fact that with these photographs were heavily hand tinted, mm-hmm. they almost don't look like photographs mm-hmm. at all. Um, yeah, and what is interesting is that um, this idea of photographs depicting fashion are just mimicking the fashion plate of the 19th century and the bourgeois mm-hmm. depiction of interior. And so often the birth of fashion photography is settled, if I may say so, with Steichen. Yes. Session with Poiret that yes. was published in uh, Art, De- and Art Decoration uh, in 1911. So because uh, that's a moment in which the photography was used as uh, an artistic medium and not just conveying a mimicking of a fashion illustration from right. the 19th century. The photographs are almost conveying something else about a mood yeah. or a lifestyle. Exactly. So yeah. a lot of people cite that one particular photo shoot, which Poiré, if I understand correctly, also art directed. So he had a hand in it. It wasn't just Edward Steichen. Um shooting the photographs, but they were trying to say something more. And a lot of times we we cite this as the birth of quote-unquote modern fashion photography um, as an artistic medium, really. And what is interesting is that although although pictures, um, fashion photographs of the early times were pictures made in studio in front of a painting backdrop. So this idea of illustration with that painting backdrop was still present in fashion photographs, not only in the pose, but also in a material way, uh, right. in in the background of the of the pictures. Yeah. Um, so around the same time, as we start to see these mass-produced fashion magazines like um, Le Mode, which is gorgeous, it's one of my favorites. Cassidy posts plenty of photographs <laughs> of from Le Mode on her Instagram feed at the Art of Dress. So follow that. Um, but as photography becomes more and more mainstream. We also witness this kind of sentiment where the pendulum swings back in the opposite direction. Um, There was a group of avant-garde designers and publishers who really weren't fans of this mass production and this mechanization of the fashion press. And they were yearning for the sort of romance of yesteryear. Um, They wanted to return to the artisanal, to the exclusive, um, to the handmade. And in 1908, the fashion designer Paul Paré, um, he created a stunning limited edition album in collaboration with the illustrator Paul Arib. Um, So this was illustration. Paré was one of these people who, despite the fact that he had a hand in this fashion shoot that we, you know, kind of cite as being early modern fashion photography, he was also doing this other thing. Um, So what is so groundbreaking um, about this particular album um, that we're talking about um, from 1908, um, Le Rode de Paré? What is interesting to to note is that um, Paul Poiré used to sketch. And he, in fact, had some of his drawings published in L'Art et la Mode in the early uh, 1900s. So he could have done his fashion catalogue himself, not uh, hiring someone else. But he wanted to set a new trend in fashion illustration and in the way to um, depict his, um, his fashion. And fashion illustration 
from the 19th century was, uh, in his eyes, no longer accurate to depict uh, what he wanted to, um, to say about fashion, and especially um, the colours he wanted to, um, to promote and, um, and show, because the printing of the 19th century would bring some more dull colours than mm-hmm. um, the bourgeois technique that would, um, would, that would be used in, um, in the early 20th century. So with Paul Irib, he, um, he chose someone who um, took illustration into a simpler way. We had in the 19th century illustrations that looked like paintings. <laughs> and with um, Paul Irib, we have uh, fashion illustrations that look like Asian art. Yeah. And with Japanese woodbot prints. Exactly. <laughs> is what they often get compared to. And with a simplification of um, the foreground and the background and a way to have the dresses with and coloring in, um, in this album, whether the back is still uncolored and, and, and black. So uh, a dynamic between the uh, foreground and the background with this uh, and coloring and those simple lines. And the aim of those um, plates were, was not to have the most accurate depiction, right. but to give this feeling of the spirit of a collection and the uh, spirit of the newness uh, Paul Poiret brought into uh, the picture. So that was a, a groundbreaking moment in fashion illustration that led uh, many people to look at fashion and depict fashion in a new way and with people that uh, would add to the illustration their own style and at the same time convey the idea of um, of the dress designer. Mm-hmm. And Paré himself, he really kind of conceived this very first album that he did, because he did do another one a few years later, um, kind of as an artist book, right? You know, we're lacking the text on those plates. Um, Paré really was one of these first fashion designers to play in this overlapping realm between art and fashion. So these little artist books that he you know, collaborated with with Paul Arib and then later Georges Lepap. Um, they were given away, most mm-hmm. of them, to clients as mm-hmm. promotional pieces. Um, some were sold later on, but this very first album in 1908, only 250 mm-hmm. were ever produced. So they, they were scre- extremely limited edition luxury objects. And, and this is kind of the antithesis of what fashion plates had been in the 19th century, which was mass-produced fashion advertising. Paul Paré was kind of trying to subvert that relationship of the commercial nature of really why he was producing this album by kind of positioning it as an artist album. Yeah. Right? Exactly. And it was as if, um, if you look at the title of this album, uh, the first one is Les Robes de Paul Poiret, Racontées so told by Paul Irib. So, mm-hmm. uh, and the second one is Les choses de Paul Poiret uh, vues par Georges Le Pape. So seen uh, by uh, Georges Le Pape. So those um, two albums are the eyes uh, some artists lay on the work of, of Paul Poiret. And he was uh, very keen on hiring artists to help um, building this uh, artistical view of uh, making um, fashion as uh, an art and at the same time uh, using marketing tools, if mm-hmm. we may say so, by uh, producing those kind of albums. It was interesting that they were intended as being um, promotional things, but they were intended to as being collector's right. items. And, uh, and the shows was sold 
and advertised in the press as the new artist book that you had to um, to collect. And uh, and that's uh, something that we didn't have before. Um, we had it in the 18th century with the series of print um, that were published by La Maisonger. And at the um, beginning of the 20th century, we have nostalgia of that moment where right. things were exclusive, made by artists like Debucourt and, and, and Horace Vernet and so on and so forth. And so this nostalgia translated itself into pochoir prints and limited um, deluxe catalogue by yeah. Paquin and also magazines that were dealing with pochoir with limited editions. Yeah. So we've, we use this word pochoir a few times now. Um, would one of you define this for us and tell us a little bit about this very specific, very gorgeous technique for making um, these types of prints? So it's a way to paint the plate uh, color by color. Uh, it's very long. It's very expensive to do. But in the end, the plate and the colors are really vivid. And it's really the, the most efficient way to depict the fashions of the time mm -hmm. because the colors were so important at the time uh, because of the influence of the... And, and the, the colors uh, used are gouache yeah. or watercolor. So it's not ink from the printing industry, but paint. Right. And so today, if you open one of those books, you will be very amazed by the vividness right. of the colors. Some of them, they almost like sear your eyeballs out. Like, <laughs> they're so bright. And this term pushwar, it means stencil. Yes. So yeah. um, this was actually a process in which um, one of the reasons why these luxury um, albums loved this technique is because it really got as close to the artist's original artwork as mm -hmm. possible almost there's a very there's a really nice painterly quality to using the technique so the color would be applied to the page by a very specific set of stencils applied in a very specific order with exacting registration mm -hmm. so basically you are creating the entire image by way of stencils just to expound on that um, a little bit further. But in the wake of the success of Poiret's artist books, he, he did two, um, this pochoir technique became wildly trendy, especially within the fashion industry. Although it wasn't only used by the fashion industry, there's really luxury limited edition artist books of like architectural designs and some other things like that that use this technique as well. But during the 19-teens and the 1920s, this pochoir technique was you know, the jam, basically. <laughs> um, and a lot of other fashion purveyors and designers produced pochoir albums of their own designs. Um, but in 1912, a very important triumvirate of pochoir periodicals was launched. So Journal de Dame de Mode, which we mentioned earlier, it was reborn, mm -hmm. um, mimicking its original format, which had ceased publication about 75 years earlier. Um, and there was also Gazette du Bonton and also Mode Menier d'Aujourd'hui. And what do you think was particularly appealing to clients about these periodicals? And some of them are really touching back on that desire for the romance of the past, um, that we kind of touched upon. The, the Journal de Dame de Motos is coming back and it's more or less its exact same format. And More Manier d'Aujourd'hui, it's kind of a riff on More Manier d'Aujourd'hui, right? So what is this relationship between early 20th century, very luxury edition, trendy 
fashion publications and the past. It's this, this idea of exclusiveness. Mm. And uh, those um, plates from the 18th century had become um, at that time, had become at that time collectors and collected by um, people from um, the art world, but also people from the fashion business. And there's famous collectors at that time, such as Emile Lier, who was a hat maker, who had an extensive collection of uh, fashion plates. And he was one of the first to make a book about Trosbertin. Mm-hmm. So it's really a moment in which some key players. Um, acted on promoting uh, the fashion of the past and the exclusiveness of the um, fashion prints of um, of the 18th uh, century. So Maud Zemanier uh, d'aujourd'hui is um, uh, paying a tribute to Maud Zemanier d'aujourd'hui, even if it's really an artist book right. and with a very limited edition of only uh, 300 copies or something like that and with some deluxe paper. And so you could have uh, 12 of the copies on Japan paper, whereas the rest was on... Um, and you on, would pay more for this privilege. And you yeah. would pay more for the privilege. <laughs> but you would enjoy um, more, um, even more delicate uh, copies. And there's some extraordinary um, prints um, that were only issued in 12 copies that are quite incredible. But even uh, the Gazette du Bon Ton had some issues on Japan paper uh, at the beginning of the um, of the publication, and so you have um, a moment in which this idea of exclusiveness is uh, translated into special editions, mm-hmm. and in those special editions, you had special copies uh, for really the elite of the elite. Right. So they, these publications were tremendously expensive, wildly expensive, um, and I would venture to guess that ultimately. The, the expense of some of them was part, not not entirely, but part of their ultimate demise. Um, by the 1920s, customers had begun complaining, I guess, about the cost of Gazette du Bonton. Um, and the magazine was forced to scale back some of their gorgeous pushbar plates um, for reasons of cost and eventually gradually began incorporating color lithography. But um, can you, and they did that in the 1920s, but um just how expensive were some of these things? Like, what was the cost of Gazette du Bonton around this time when people are like, whoa, this is too much? So the yearly subscription to the Gazette du Bonton uh, at the beginning was 100 francs. Mm-hmm. So today we did the math and it could be $37,000 a year. Yes. So that's how expensive it was. Yeah, so I um, oftentimes tell my students that a subscription to some of these luxury publications cost as much as a car. Yeah. Like... Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the the French National Institute of Statistics might be equivalent. So they, this is quite impressive that to know that what you could buy with 100 francs at that time is $37,000 today. And if you look at those at the most expensive copies of those deluxe prints, you would buy a flat with <laughs> that kind of right. amount of money. So it was really something for um, for the elite and, and talking to the elite. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so gradually the vogue for 
couture fashion plates um, waned. And I think that the stock market crash of 1929 was kind of the last nail in this coffin because after the war, after World War I, they never really came back. A push wire didn't really come back with the same strength, I would I would venture to say. Um, that, that sort of opulence, you know, started to lose its place in the new economic climate. Um, so this cheaper and more efficient medium of photography gained ground. And by the 1930s, the sort of 250-year reign of the fashion plate was just about over. Um, would you agree, like, 1930s? This is this is when we start to yeah. see the fashion plate kind of mm-hmm. fall out of fashion. Yeah, and, <laughs> Pun and, intended. <laughs> and you have uh, the first um, photographic cover of Vogue in 1932. So it's the moment when uh, we, we shift from um, f- illustration to, um, to photography. So after a quick break from our sponsors, um, I'm going to ask Antoine and Nicolas to tell us a little bit about some of their fabulous fashion plates and some of their other items available at Librairie Dictats. So it goes out saying that your collection of fashion plates that you all have includes some pretty spectacularly rare items. Um, are there any particular special gems that you would like to speak about? I know that you recently just published a brand new catalog, which you just gave me a copy of, but I did consume it a few days ago, all on PDF. So thank you for sending that to me in advance. Um, but there was a ton of research and writing that went into this publication, there, this catalog that you just published. Yes, we, we've spent a, a, lot, a lot of time uh, trying to assemble a collection that um, would make a kind of survey of mm-hmm. the history of, uh, of fashion plates from uh, 1610 to um, 1920s. And, um, and among those um, plates, many, <laughs> I would say almost all of them are rare, but some of, uh, some of them are extremely rare in, and especially uh, one uh, book that is uh, a collection of different suites uh, of prints by uh, Bernard Picard that uh, dates from the late uh, 17th century. And there's 86 prints that are wow. together, oddly seen together. And, because and people would separate these, yeah. these yes. sets and, yeah. you know, sometimes put them up on their walls. Exactly, exactly. You know, you can look in 19th century photographs commonly and find people using fashion plates mm-hmm. as interior decoration. Mm-hmm. So to get them all together is very special. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and it's, and they're absolutely gorgeous. They depict a moment in which there's a, a shift in fashion with the very early uh, 18th century and uh, and what is interesting is that the volume has been bound at the um, at the beginning of the 18th century, so it's a contemporary binding, and um, and that's you never find that kind of thing on the market with mm-hmm. um, with this um, amount of uh, engraving and in that um, condition. So that's a, a very interesting um, book we have we have been lucky to um, to have. Uh, another interesting items, another gems uh, in our collection is um, a collection of plates from the magazine The Fashion of London and Paris. And that magazine was copying, uh, of course, Le Journal des Dames et des Modes by, by La Mésangère. And, um, and it's a um, very rare set because we have um, more plates than uh, the usual uh, number of plates mm-hmm. associated with, uh, with the magazine. And all those plates that um, cover 
uh, almost 10, um, 10 years of, um, of publication um, are um, bound together in a, in a four-volume uh, set. So that's um, a very interesting thing. And it's when it comes to um, speak about copying, it's very interesting because you can uh, match, uh, find out, out where the plates come, yeah. come from. So that's a very interesting um, uh, set of, um, of fashion plates. Mm-hmm. And then we have, of course, some Galerie des Modes plates. Yeah, several uh, Galerie des Modes original uh, plates. We even found um, a bound set of 15 plates, oh, wow. uh, including the, the title page, which is quite mm-hmm. rare. And um, as they have been bound, they are they have been protected, so the colors are really fresh. Mm-hmm. It's, they are beautiful, beautiful. And one of the things that makes that special is um, there is no known complete set yeah. of Galerie des Modes Nobody known to no. exist no. anywhere. No. Um, and originally they started out doing hairstyles, which mm-hmm. were changing, you know, that poof that we spoke about in our Rose Bertin episode. Um, originally they were depicting the the changing hairstyles and then they transitioned into clothing, but there there is no known complete set known to exist anywhere. No. Yeah. And the title page is uh, is often not bound mm. in the volumes, in the most prestigious volume. In, uh, in the uh, French national libraries, they don't have that title page. Um, so it's quite interesting to have the title page and in the original end coloring. Right. Because, as we know, the end coloring is an issue with uh, Galerie de Vaux. Well, and they even say in the title, on, on that, that title page, like, uh, uh, painted in, what was her name? Madame, Madame Le, Le, Le Beau. Beau. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. They, they call out who actually yeah. was the colorist yeah. for the publication. Yeah, it's, and it's interesting because with this publication, we have um, the name of the artist, the name of the engraver, but we have also the name of um, the end colorist. Mm-hmm. And what is even more interesting with that publication is that you could have several engraver for the same plate. And even if we have one name at the end of the plate, you would have um, another engraver who would have etched the plate. And then the, the engraver that is credited on the plate is the one that has um, done the finishing with right. a dry point or a sizzled needle. I don't remember what the exact name of the tool is, but uh, so you would have different engravers. And, and we have, with that publication, the names of almost everybody apart from that um, mm-hmm. first engraver, etcher, if we may call him. And we talked about Poiret, so obviously we have the, the two catalogues. And, but one of them is really special because we uh, happen to have Les Choses de Paul Poiret, uh, vu par Georges Le Pape, um, inscribed by Poiret and by Georges Le Pape, and uh, inscribed to uh, Georges Barbier, which is really an exceptional provenance. Yeah. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Georges Barbier was also one of these extremely elite illustrators um, who was working um, during the same time period. And Cassidy is a huge fan of Barbier, so I'm sure we'll chat about him more in a future episode. Um, besides fashion plates, what are some of your other favorite items that you have? You guys know that I have like a constant running list <laughs> of all of my wishes and desires from your collection. Like one of my things that I really want is that you have this, get me wrong if I'm saying it wrong. It's like a treatise or a pamphlet of some sort. And basically someone's making a complaint that all the Parisian seamstresses and shop girls were also working as prostitutes yeah. in order to make their ends meet. Like, 
some of, you have wildly amazing things. <laughs> yes, that, that's a very interesting um, document. And it's a, a complaint that was made by uh, the manager of um, Bovell, mm-hmm. a Parisian Bovell. Um, and she complained to the mayor of Paris at the time, who was uh, Sylvain Bailly, that uh, the fashion workers were making some um, illegal uh, competition. <laughs> and um, So the madam didn't like the shop girls working that, as prostitutes exactly. because then they weren't patronizing her abode. <laughs> and what is interesting is that in that complaint, you have the list of all those fashion workers and where... She names them. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what is amazing because you have um, a list of names and you know who worked for whom at that time and in what uh, kind of uh, shop. If, if it was uh, a feather shop or a marchand de mode and so on and so forth. So it's mm-hmm. a, a very interesting um, a very interesting text. And we wish there would have been more complaint <laughs> against the fashion workers to have that kind of information that you don't easily find mm-hmm. anywhere else. Yeah. Because that's a, a, great, um, a great piece. And, and we, we have started by uh, buying and collecting things that were classics, for us, mm-hmm. and so we um, we started with book, and then we we decided to um, try to find some things that were more exceptional, uh, not always exceptional by um, the making, if I may say, but exceptional by um, giving an information that you don't find right. somewhere else. So we started to expand our um, hunt and to uh, ephemera. Uh, letters, uh, prints, um, photographs, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, and we have been able to to find some um, quite interesting um, pieces. And and we like when they are linked with a specific uh, context. Right. Um, for example, we've got a, a drawing of Sarah Rafal. Well, nobody knows who Sarah Rafal is today, but she was a French actress, and she started as a model for Paul Poiret, and she was. Uh, Paul Poiret lover for a, a long time. And that sketch was made by Paul Poiret himself on um, the table of Maxime's mm-hmm. in Paris, on the letterhead of Maxime's wow. during a dinner. And so that's uh, a very interesting piece saying something about the relation between Poiret and Raphael, the time they mm-hmm. used to um, to date um, each other. Is this other. when and he was still at Doucet? No, it was later. This was later. Okay. It was later because she this was... This was after he was married. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I think he was... Um, Quite the ladies' man. Yeah. So yes. says the rumor. Exactly. Um, what do we know about this rumor that perhaps he was in a relationship or seeing Josephine Baker? Can we lend any credence to this or...? Uh, it, it has been said and... Um, and we haven't found evidence of it, but we had some um, talks with some relatives that would say that it was true. So we would believe that it could be true, even mm. if they had some arguments about some unpaid bills, if my memory is good. Yes, but they... and we do talk about that lawsuit in our <laughs> Paul Paré episodes. If you want to know more about that, you can jaunt back in the catalogue of dressed episodes. I'm always in awe of you guys. I'm like, where do they find this stuff? (laughs) Like, I'm not asking you to give away any trade secrets here, but like, what is the role of research um, in your business in tracking down these types of very, very rare materials? And like, what does your typical week look like in terms of collecting and research and 
selling. There's no real secrets. <laughs> you, you you have to. It's that everyone knows you. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah, and, and you have to look for something to to find something, <laughs> and you don't have to look for something specific to to find something. Or you have to spend hours in some remote place in uh, in an old old book treasure trove. Yeah. yeah, and um, and we have. Um, since we have been dealing with um, with books and, and documents for what twelve or thirteen years um, now, um, some people know us and uh, and they come and they uh, ask if we would be interested by that pieces. But uh, we spent a lot of time on flea markets, auctions, and so on and so forth. And we uh, often find things and we say, "Oh, it should be interesting," and it only revealed its full. Um, Interest after uh, tons of, uh, mm-hmm. of research. Uh, for example, um, we bought a, um, a wonderful um, chalk drawing um, 10 years ago, and it depicted an elegant lady uh, with a dog on a leash, and she was wearing a, a beautiful 18th century dress, and the drawing was beautiful, but it's an unsigned drawing. The, um, um, the line are really gorgeous, and, uh, and it's only... Uh, a couple of years ago that we discovered that it was a print that led to a fashion plate and oh, that wow. uh, this fashion plate was credited to Jean-Baptiste Duet, one of the main master of, um, of the 18th century uh, um, scenes. Uh, so it takes time, it takes intuition <laughs> and, and it takes a lot of uh, hours in hunting. Right. Um, but it's always um, rewarding to... Uh, have something and add some meaning to it and a layer uh, and different layers of um, of meaning and not only uh, giving a name to a picture but to uh, date it and to uh, reput it and reinsert it in uh, in the fashion history or in, right. in the history. In its rightful place. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, speaking of hunting and finding, how can people find you? They should hunt. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not make them hunt. <laughs> No, so we have a website, um, and it's called uh, dictat.com, and uh, we also have an Instagram account, and so they can contact us uh, Mm -hmm. through the internet. And that's www.dictats.com. And what is your Instagram handle? It's Dictat Bookstore. Yeah, Dictat Bookstore, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. at Dictat Bookstore. We'll post post this in the show notes for this episode. Um, And I'm not joking when I say that when you listeners go to their website, some of you are probably about to spend hours on there because really just looking at your website is a fashion history education in and of itself. (laughs) Um, I I always find myself doing some delicious nerding out um, when I'm on your site. So, Antoine Nicolas, thank you so much for being here thank with you. us today. <laughs> it's always such a treat to see you both and bask in your very intense fashion history knowledge. Um, and because of your occupation, um, you've had the occasion to meet so many inside players, um, you know, including the living relatives of some of the great fashion designers. Is there any one last hot topic or story that you've gleaned from these kind of dealings that you want to leave our listeners addressed with? Well, there's no hot topics with fashion history. It's almost all only cold cases. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's always easier to deal with <laughs> dead designer than <laughs> with living designers. Um, but we we always like to um, to deal and to speak with uh, with 
inheritance of um, of fashion uh, designers because mm-hmm. uh, um, it's about sharing knowledge and um, and it's uh, always very interesting to to speak with um, the descendants of Paul Poiret, of Vort, and, and so on and so forth. So, or the fashion houses that have heritage department and that deal with the legacy and memory of Chanel, Dior, and so on and so forth. So, it's always very interesting to to speak with them and um, and and to help them um, building up uh, an right. archive the that p- could have been money. lost yeah. in time. Um, or willingly lost in times when you think of Chanel that uh-huh. <laughs> um, ensure that her legacy was <laughs> written the way she wanted it to, to be written. Right. Um, but we we always um, enjoy um, sharing, and uh, and we have a couple of um, of anecdotes related to those families that try to find their past back in a way, and uh, and it's always very. Touching, because, um, for example, we we saw the picture of the mother of a client, uh, and knowing that it goes back to the family, right? It's something that is rewarding, and um, and even when we deal with with big luxury group, uh, knowing that it goes back to um, the it's people who are almost. in charge, in a way, of the yeah. legacy is. Um, is a, a kind of a rewarding thing. And the best thing is when it goes to museums because it's still available for, for public everyone. research mm. and everyone. Yes. So thank you again thank for you. joining us. I would say farewell and goodbye, but this is not goodbye because I'm going to see you two in a couple of days <laughs> <Exactly>. for cocktails. <laughs> Where was my invitation? Well, as you know, that interview was recorded a few weeks ago, Cass, and you were not with us in the studio because that week you were off living a very fancy Hollywood life. <laughs> you make it sound a tad more glamorous than it is. I am living this life in New Mexico. Yeah. So I'm not sure if we actually mentioned it on the show yet or not, but when we are not making dressed, Cassidy's other life is as a costumer for film and television. So while we were having cocktails, you were probably off somewhere doing a fitting with some fabulous celebrity. Professionally, my lips are sealed, but I do want to extend my thanks to Antoine and Nicola, who are delightful to chat with. They are always willing to indulge my current fascinations with a rotating cast of designers and illustrators represented in their holding. Uh, April is not joking. Go check out their website immediately. That's all for us this week. Until next week, we hope you consider having a little runway moment of your own and stepping out the door as your own fashion plate when you get dressed. For visuals pertaining to all of our episodes, follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can find us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And as always, additional reading for each episode can be found on our website, dressedpodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you if you want to write to us at dressed at howstuffworks.com. This week's episode was recorded at Mouth Media Studios in New York City. Mouth Media is powered by Sennheiser. You can find out more information at www.mouthmedianetwork.com. And last, but certainly not least, thank you to our production team at How Stuff Works, which includes Holly Fry and Casey Pegram, and up until recently, Noel Brown. Wait, where did Noel go? No, he didn't really go anywhere. He just kind of got a fancy promotion, so he's up to other stuff. Ew, congrats, Congratulations, Noel. Noel.